And again, a good morning to you all. Um, welcome. We're glad you're, visit- you're with us, whether you're visiting or you're a regular attendee. We're glad you're here uh, joining us for worship this morning. And uh, there are a number of announcements that I'm not going to enumerate, but I'll simply uh, draw your attention to them to, to check. Uh, check them out uh, in the back of your worship guide to see what's going on, um, opportunities for connection and involvement in the church life. Um, and as well, if uh, any of the children haven't been dismissed for children's church, this would be the appropriate time to do so. Teachers will be waiting uh, out in the front entranceway. Uh, we've been working our way uh, through the book of Genesis, and today is the uh, penultimate week in this series uh, before uh, taking a break over uh, the, the summer. The plan is that we'll wrap up Abraham's life over this week and next, and then we'll push pause, uh, and then we'll come back later in the, in the year and pick the story back up with, with Isaac. But this morning, if you've been with us over the last several weeks, you know that we've been looking at this guy named Abraham. And Abraham is, uh, is a guy to whom God has promised land, descendants, and blessing. And he promised these things to him unilaterally and unconditionally, which means that no matter what Abraham did, no matter what his descendants did, the promise was going to be there for him and his descendants. And yet, Abraham, as we uh, has kind of been, if you've been following along with us, you know that he uh, has kind of been inconsistent, to say the least. Uh, sometimes he would display great faith in what God has said. Uh, and yet at other times, he would doubt God and epically fail. Uh, so much so that he actually sold out his wife to save his own skin. Not once, but twice. And on another occasion, in doubting God, uh, he took matters into his own hands. God said, you and Sarah... Uh, will have a son, and then uh, instead, at the prompting of his wife, uh, he went and took his fem- female servant and had a son through her, because he actually didn't think that, that, that his wife was going to be able to have a kid. And in all of this, God, God is so abundantly faithful to Abraham. And, and one of the greatest ways he's faithful to him is by giving him a son through his 90-year-old wife, Sarah, the son, Isaac. And God says to him, this son, Isaac, is the one through whom I will fulfill my covenant to you. The land will belong to him and his descendants. He will have many descendants. Through him will come blessing. It's coming through Isaac. And this, as I say, was when he was 100 years old and his wife was 90 years old. And now we land on Genesis 22. And Genesis 22 uh, might be the most popular story of Abraham's life. It might be for some of us uh, the only story of his life that we've ever heard. And, and, and when you read the story alone and you divorce it from the context of all that we've uh, covered for the last several weeks, you could make Abraham out to be the hero. But again, what do, we, what do we know about him? Well, he's not always done so well, has he? So there must be another hero in the story. I'm going to read straight through Genesis 22 because not only is this one of the most familiar passages, it's one of the most phenomenal stories in the, in the whole Bible. It's, it's, uh, it's amongst my favorite chapters in all the Bible, so I want to read it straight through and then we'll dive in. 
After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. And on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, And he took in his hand the fire and the knife, so they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, uh, said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told them, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering uh, instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you've done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven, the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Because you have obeyed my voice. Let's pray. Father, this is a story that uh, many of us who've grown up in the church are familiar with. It's a story that offends our our modern sensibilities in some ways. And, and, And our culture sometimes points a finger at this story and says, How dare God even suggest to Abraham that he do such a thing. So would you help us today as we look deeper into the story to to see what it really means and how it applies to us. And while it's a story that, that causes us to think that maybe Abraham is the hero of the story, would you show us who the true hero of the story really is? For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. For those of us who've grown up uh, in the church and we've heard this story so many times, we know how the 
the story ends. For those of us who may be uh, unfamiliar with it, maybe it's even the first time that you've ever heard it, you now know, now know how the story ends. But I want this story just to settle on us in the way it would have settled in on Abraham. After God had miraculously provided this son for Abraham, a son that eventually God will call a boy in the story, but he's old enough to carry wood, so he's got to be old enough to be able to do that. This son has, has, has grown up, and, and Abraham has watched this boy that God had promised, this will be the son through whom you will have descendants that outnumber the stars of the sky or the sands of the sea. This is going to be the boy. And so Abraham watches him grow up and watches him take his first steps and watches him toddle around and walk around the table and do the cute things that, 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 that little boys do. And he watches him grow up and, and, and say his first words and all of that. He loves the boy. And then this God that gave him the boy calls out to him, says, Abraham. And Abraham says, here I am. And God says, take your son. Now, Abraham has two sons, but he knows which one he's talking about. His other son has, has already been sent away, so he knows which, which son. But just in case, God clarifies. God says, I want you to take your son, your only son. And again, not a slap in the face uh, uh, to Ishmael, but a reminder that, that this is the son through whom the covenant will come. God says, I want you to take your son, your only son, the son that you love. And Abraham says, yes, I love him with all my heart. I want you to take your son, your only son, the son that you love, and I want you to take him to Mount Moriah, and I want you to burn him to death as a burnt offering to me. Dad, let that just uniquely settle in. I want you to take your son, your only son that you love, and I want you to burn him as a burnt offering. Unless you are so over-familiar with the stories of Genesis that they no longer shock and surprise you as they are meant to, you've got to admit that this chapter is a little bit hard to come to terms with. How could God possibly ask Abraham to do this? How could he ask him to sacrifice his own son? And I don't know about you, but I find myself asking questions. I look at this and say, is that like God? Would God do that? Is that the God to whom I've committed my life and whose direction I seek to follow? Would he really ask this of someone? And the only thing that is more shocking than God actually asking this of Abraham is Abraham actually obeying. Not just because it would be near impossible for any of us to obey, but Abraham has, 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 has not shown a particularly stellar track record for obedience. But this is what it says. So Abraham rose early in the morning. He obeyed immediately. For me, this would have been a day to sleep in. I never would have wanted to get out from under the covers. But it says, Oh, Abraham arose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Three days. 
It takes Abraham three days to get to this place. This is a 50-mile journey, a 50-mile journey with Abraham, Isaac, and, and, and these two young men who are traveling with them. Three days, plenty of time to think, plenty of time to change his mind, plenty of time to, to, to devise and come up with another scheme, plenty of time to conjure up a U-turn, but he kept going. Why? That's faith. 72 hours for Abraham to roll around in his mind the character of God, to, to, to think back over the last several decades as God has promised him things again and again and fulfilled those things to him again and again. And Tim Keller has this great description of this that he said that he stole from someone else that he can't remember. So I'm stealing it from Tim who stole it from someone else who can't remember. So thanks to that guy. But, but, but he says that God, when he first meets Abraham, he says to to him, he says to him, I'm going to send you out. And Abraham says, where? And he, and he says, I'll tell you later, just go. And then he says to him, I'm going to give you uh, a land. And Abraham says, where? And he says, I'll tell you later, just go. And then he says, I'm going to give you a son. And he says, how? And he says, I'll tell you later, just trust me. And then he gives him a son and he says, I want you to kill your son. Abraham says, why? I'll tell you later, just go. So for three days, he mulls over his lifetime of experience with God. And I wonder, and this is not right there in the text, but I wonder if, if, if what has happened here is, is he is pretty sure how things are going to go down. He, he, he trusts God now. He's seen what God has done in his life. And he doesn't know exactly what's going to happen, but he knows God's character. I mean, listen carefully to what he says to the guys when he gets them out. He says to the young man, stay here with the donkeys, and I and the boy will go over there and worship and come back to you. So even though he has been told to sacrifice his son, he knows God has promised that his son is going to, to, to be the son through whom the, the, all the, the descendants are going to, going to come. And, and, and he must have rolled over all the other options in his mind on that three-day walk. Is God going to make me start over? Is, is God going to provide another miracle? Where Sarah now has a baby at 130 years old? He's thinking, no, because repeatedly when I disobeyed and had Ishmael through Hagar, he, he, he said, no, your descendants are coming through Isaac. And when Isaac was born, God said, your descendants are coming through Isaac. And so a lifetime of this is rolling through Abraham's mind. And God is changing this man. God's changing him. You know, earlier in the story, we are told that Abraham is made righteous by faith. And that's, that, that means he's made positionally righteous before God by faith. And I think what we see here, and indeed what we really see throughout the rest of Abraham's life, is that the rest of his life is now catching up with who he already is. And it's just taking a long time. A long, long time. It reminds me of what... Uh, it reminds me of the book of James where it says, 
Consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance, and perseverance must finish its work so that you'll be mature and complete, not lacking anything. So if you want to lack nothing and be mature and complete, you must go through these trials and persevere through these trials. And so when you face these trials, you consider them pure joy. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father, and he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them together. What a picture, a father and son embraced in conversation, embraced in one another's love. And carrying between them the materials for a sacrifice, both the offerer and the victim walking together. And then this remarkable phrase, God will provide for himself the lamb. No one ever expects the God to provide the lamb. The pagan cultures that perform uh, burnt sacrifices, they, they don't expect God to provide the sacrifice. But Abraham knows his God. And if anyone knows that God will provide, if anyone can make a remarkable statement like this that, 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 that took a lifetime to muster, it's him. God made, a, made him a promise, land, descendants, and blessing, unconditionally, unilaterally, unilaterally, and he just keeps telling him, I'll tell you later, I'll tell you later, just trust me, I'll tell you later. And he had the certainty that God was going to provide a way out for his son. He didn't know how, but he was in no doubt that he would. Abraham loved his boy, but he trusted his God. And God is changing the man. And when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in, in order and bound Isaac, his son, that is, that, is, that is one of the hardest phrases for me in there. I don't know why he bound his son up. Uh, was his son trying to run away? I mean, his son could probably out, outrun him. I mean, he's a hundred and some year old man. His son could beat him in a foot race or simply out muscle him. We don't exactly know how old he is. Josephus says that Isaac was 25 at this time. I, I, I don't know how, I don't know why, but I, I can't get over that, that part. Bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Again, how did he get him on the altar? It seems to me that there are only two, possi two possibilities. Either he wrestled him on there, or Isaac went on himself. And if Isaac went on himself, then it seems to me that Isaac must have embraced not just his father's faith, but his father's God. That Abraham had communicated effectively to his son uh, to, uh, the great faith that, that welled up in his heart. He was able to say to him, the Lord will provide. I don't know how he's going to do it, but I'm sure he's going to do it, son. Because I know that you are the very at the very central, you are the very central part of his purposes for the future. And we are given here, as someone has said, not a picture of resignation, but a picture of consecration. As Isaac accepts without resistance the role of sacrifice. He allows himself to be bound on the altar. And then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife. And this 
This is a knife that earlier it says he took the knife and the torch and held them together as he walked up the mountain. And he binds his boy and lays him down on the altar. And then the story just seems to slow down right here. And he, and he lifts the knife up. He, he's going to do it. There, there's no doubt in Abraham now. There's no timidity in Abraham. He trusts his God. And I don't even know how to wrestle through this piece right here. But in that moment, with the, light, with the knife raised, someone cries out, Abraham, Abraham. Now that's someone that cries out is described as the angel of the Lord. Now if you've been with us uh, in this series, you know that when we talk about the angel of the Lord, there are different opinions on this. But one of the opinions, the one that I share, is that when you run into the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament and the angel of the Lord behaves differently than other angels and he accepts worship and he sometimes makes declarations on God's behalf, that that angel is a Christophany. It is Jesus showing up in the Old Testament. So earlier in the story, it was God talking to him, but now it's Jesus talking to him. And Jesus yells out, Abraham, Abraham, do not touch the boy. Do not touch him. Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. Abraham's faith shines throughout this chapter. He reassures Isaac God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, whether, whether the Lord would provide by substitution or by resurrection. Abraham didn't know the answer, but he trusted God all the same. Somehow a substitute would be provided. Somehow God will offer a lamb and everything will be okay. Abraham knows that Isaac is the promised one, that he is the hope of the world, that he's the immediate fulfillment of the cosmic promises God has been making since Genesis 12, the offspring of Abraham who will save and bless the world. And therefore, no Isaac, no Israel. No Israel, no Christ. And if there's no Christ, there's no salvation. So whatever happens, Isaac will make it through. Abraham, you see, has this resurrection-shaped faith. And on this occasion, a ram is provided. And this becomes an incredibly holy place for the Jews. This is where they built their temple on this mountain. And this becomes a, a pivotal moment in Israel's history. This is where they begin to declare the message that God will provide himself the lamb. And then the angel of the Lord says, by myself I have sworn. It's only Jesus who can say, I swear to God and not be blaspheming. I swear by myself. And then he renews this covenant of the descendants of Isaac outnumbering the stars of the heavens or the sand and the sea. Paradoxically, it was because Abraham was willing to put the promise on the line and risk losing it that the promise was renewed. But all along, the, the enti this entire thing hinges 
on God's character. We've seen this again and again and again for chapters now, that this promise that he makes to Abraham doesn't hinge on Abraham or his, or his behavior, but it hinges on God and his character. But then the angel of the Lord says the most interesting thing. He says, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. Because you've done this. And this is a, a very interesting statement. Because how can this be? How can it be that God can make a unilateral covenant with Abraham and say there's no conditions attached? Oh, by the way, because you did this, I'm going to honor this. It's not like a bait and switch where, where he's adding conditions later and saying, ha, psych, that's not God. So what's going on? Well, we see this uh, in Scripture again and again. We, we see in the book of James, for uh, instance, it says faith without works is dead. It doesn't mean that works are what saves you. It means that someone who has faith shows works. It's what Jesus was talking about when he said a, a good tree cannot bear bad fruit and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. This is what theologians uh, uh, call the fact that the, that the imperative must follow the indicative. And, and, and you see that in Scripture. And these are big words that, that we need to, to, to keep straight. But the imperative always follows the indicative. And what does that mean? Well, well the imperative is what we do. How, how we must live. And the indicative is, is a statement of truth about what has been done for us and what is true about us. And so this always follows this. In other words, what we do always is anchored on what has been done for us. And so what we see here is because God has made Abraham righteous by faith, the rest of him is catching up. It's just taking a really, really long time. Is that comforting to you? I mean, it's comforting to me that he is so patient in the work he is doing in Abraham's life, God is changing this man. And surely the key moment of change came during those 72 hours that Abraham had to ponder and to, to, time to reflect and to think. And at the end of that journey, the Lord did indeed spare Isaac's life. Uh, and he told Abraham to look in the bush for the answer to his a great question of how will God keep his word and fulfill his promise to me in light of the fact of what he is asking me to do. And there in the thicket was an innocent ram. Its head was surrounded by thorns and it was impaled on, on Mount Moriah, the mountain where Solomon, as I said, would, would, would later build his temple and whose craggy outcrops the, the, the Romans would later call Calvary. You see, the answer to Abraham's million shekel question was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You see, the whole of Genesis 22 undeniably points us forward. It points us forward to another sacrifice that would take place on this very same mountain. That, that contained within this event with Abraham and Isaac, there was a foreshadowing of what one day would happen between God the Father and God the Son. You see, the reason that the Lord had referred to Isaac as your 
your son, your only son, was that the only way that Isaac's life could be spared was through the death of God's only son, Jesus, in his place. In other words, the God that saved Abraham's son sacrificed his own. And the picture of Abraham taking the wood and placing it on his son Isaac, those of you who are familiar with the story, you'll, you, you, you'll think forward to the event that John records for us in John 19 where, where he says of Jesus that he went out and as he walked up Calvary, what did he do? He, he carried on his back his own cross. In other words, he went bearing on his back the wood that would be used to, to, to it would be used for the sacrifice that he was about to make. And as Isaac moves forward bearing this wood, he foreshadows one who at a much later time would bear upon himself that which would be the symbol of his own sacrifice. He would be taken out onto a piece of wood and nailed to it. And in, those, in the very same verse, you have the combination of Isaac bearing the wood and Abraham the father carrying the fire and the knife. And you say to yourself, surely this cannot be a picture of God the father and his son. Well, if you turn forward to Isaiah 53, you'll notice the way that, that these events are described there. Isaiah 53 and verse 7 here, speaking of Jesus as he, is, as he offered himself up, it says he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. So we have a picture here of the submission of the Son. But then in, in verse 10, we have the sobering picture of the action of the Father. Notice what it says, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. He caused him to suffer. The, the atonement, what Christ accomplished on the cross, was not something brought into history to support a, a defect in the system. The atonement was written into the eternal purposes of God so that as we see the offering up of Jesus submissively, by the same token, we see the action of God the Father in those awesome words, it was the will of God to crush him. In other words, Abraham's hand would be stayed, but the father's would not. God didn't ask Abraham to, to go through with the sacrifice, but on that one dark Friday, God would. The beloved son of the father would walk willingly up that hill, carrying the wood on his back, and there, would be, there he would be slain to save and bless the world. Remember, remember the question there that, that Isaac asked, the fire is here, the wood is here, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Of course, can't you hear the words of John the Baptist reverberating down through the ages as he looks at, on at Christ and says, what? Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You see, the Lord Jesus, you see, he would be the true and better ram who carried his cross, even as Isaac carried the chopped wood, and, and who felt more abandoned by his father than Isaac did when, when Abraham raised his knife. And you know what? Jesus allows us to echo God's words in verse 12, for we now know for sure he loves us because, as it says, you have not withheld from me 
your son, your only son. And Paul quotes Abraham and the story. He just kind of throw it, throws it in there in, in, in Romans 8. And he uses the, 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 the same words so that we can hear the story threaded throughout Romans. Uh, when, when, when he said, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who's to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? I want you to hear those words of Paul this morning. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us. If you are in Christ this morning, he did that for you. That's his sacrifice for you. That That he would give up his own son for you. And he goes on to say, will he not also graciously... And generously give us all things. It's all about his generosity. It's about Abraham walking up the mountain and saying, God will provide the lamb. He's going to give. He, he's a giving, generous God. And we know that, that, that he is also that way towards us. Giving us that which was of greatest value, his very own son. Even for flawed people like us. And then Paul goes on to say, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? You know, when we begin to feel the, the guilt and the pressure and the condemnation that, that, that we so often feel in life, often because of our own stupidity, our own stupid actions and unbelief, stuff like, like in the life of Abraham, we, we, we mirror this kind of nonsense and unbelief. And sometimes... We feel it because it's, it's thrust upon us by others. We feel guilt. We feel pressure. We feel condemnation. Well, Paul reminds us, who's going to bring a charge against you? Will God, who justifies? Will Jesus, the one who died, the one that was raised? Jesus is the only one who can, but right now, you know what he's doing? Right now, he's at the right hand of the, God the Father interceding for us. In other words, when you sin, when you waver, when you doubt, when you make a meal of it, often like Abraham did much of his life, he's standing next to the Father saying, I've got that one. My shed blood covered that one. There's no one to condemn you. There's no one to condemn you. And sometimes we feel condemned. Sometimes we feel that accusation coming. So let me read it again. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger 
or sword. For those here this morning who are in Christ, who know and have experienced the provision of the crucified lamb who stood in our place as our substitute, just as as that innocent ram stood in the place of Isaac, for those of us who are in Christ this morning, know that there is no one to accuse you. That there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so let's, let us take that, and then we can listen to the advice of the old preacher Charles Spurgeon who said this, When I thought God was hard, I found it easy to sin. But then I found God so kind, so good, so overflowing with compassion, I beat my breast to think I could have ever rebelled against the one who loved me so and sought my good. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, we thank you for Abraham. We thank you for his faith. Uh, We thank you that it is because of his faith that he's made righteous. But but we know that that faith was a gift from you. And so we thank you for for all of that. We thank you that it's you that, that justifies. It's you that sanctifies. You're the one who saved him. You're the one who continued to save him. And you're the one who one day saved him when he went to be with you. And we pray this morning the same for us. We pray that we would place our faith in you and you alone and that you would save us, that you would continue to save us and one day save us in glory. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.